Hello, Crossroads. How's everybody doing? Are you excited? Okay, we're going to need some energy. We're going to need some energy. Some of this is going to get pretty heavy, so I'm going to make sure that all of you are excited and ready to go. We're continuing our Building Stronger Families series, and this weekend we're talking about hope for hurting families. Now, before we go any further, let's establish a baseline. Anybody here ever hurt? Anybody ever been hurting before in your life? I know that I have. And so to sort of establish some common ground, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sing the entire five minutes and 40 seconds of the REM classic, Everybody Hurts. Here we go. Okay, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Now, hopefully, because then there would have really been some hurting families, but, but hopefully we can laugh a little bit here because we're discussing something that's actually very serious. I hope that everyone here at Fremont and at the Hayward campus, that you'll take really good notes because we are going to, whether you have young children, whether you have teenagers, or whether you're someone's kid, maybe I think most of us here are, whether you are someone else's child, we're all susceptible to hurt in our families. We're all part of a family, and we can all use some hope. So please stay tuned in. Make sure that you take good notes. Now you might ask, well, how can I recognize if my family has some dysfunction? That's a very good question. It's actually easy to tell just by looking. We're going to have a visual test. First, here's a picture of a family that's got it all together. Now I'm going to show you a picture of a family who's really in need of hope. You catch that? You just can't tell. And so that's why our first truth should really, hopefully, free you up. Are you ready, Crossroads? Here we go. The first truth we operate with tonight is that there are no perfect families. There are no perfect families. We all need help. So let's get that established right away. I hope it's freeing. I know it may seem obvious, and we tend to acknowledge it with our heads. But sometimes our actions tell a different story. Sometimes we believe there really are perfect families out there, and sometimes we're the ones who are deficient. How many of us have ever been part of a family where we're obsessed over keeping up appearances? Always trying to look like the perfect family, right? Every chance we get. It's like a posed family photo. And yet, on the inside, so much hurt going on. So my friends, I pray that you want to allow God's hope to lift your family. I pray that you want to move in that direction. Because I'm going to share four biblical keys that will hopefully allow us to achieve that. The first two are to put our hearts in the right place. And then the second two keys will prescribe some action so that we can move forward. Let's get started. Please take out your note sheet. The first key, key number one, 
Stop trying to lead your family on your own and admit you need God's strength. In my life, I've encountered times of hopelessness. Nearly seven years ago, I was married. And when my wife moved out, not of my choice, I had to face the fear that everything was changing. I had no control and I was hurting. The sadness was, it was paralyzing. I knew I couldn't regain hope under my own power. My little family was falling apart. My world was crumbling. And yet, something came to mind. I was reminded of this by a friend. It's Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3. Take a look. It teaches us that God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear when earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. Let the oceans roar and foam. Let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. This verse is designed to teach us that God has the power. God is in control. And when we hurt, God is still in command. He still has the strength, and it's only through God's strength that we can lead our families into a place of hopefulness. So I encourage you, never compare your family to others. It's a trap. It is an absolute trap to compare your family with other families. Maybe you see them in public. Maybe you see them on social media. I know a lot of you spend time you're looking up and you're seeing pictures of old friends and oh my goodness, it seems like they're just model status, perpetually smiling, the most beautiful families. If that's what you're seeing, I want to give you permission. It's okay every now and then to go ahead and turn off fake book. <laughs> it's okay to not pay attention to your Insta-sham. Because what you're seeing, it's much like online dating, and may God help you. I pray that you never have to go through that. But, but it's people putting their best family face forward. Do you understand that? And so people start to feel inferior. They start to feel, oh, my family will never look like that. We'll never be perfect like that. We will all breathe easier if we acknowledge that as families, we're all going to have struggles. We will all have imperfections that we deal with, and we need to own that imperfection. We need to embrace it. I have some good news for you tonight. With your, imperfe your imperfect family, you are in really good biblical company. You are in great biblical company. Tonight, if you don't believe me, I'm going to prove it to you, we're going to take a look at some super healthy and well-adjusted families in the Bible. You ready to see them? Here we go. First, well, it's the very first family. So we have Sweetheart, or Adam, as you may know him. And you have Honey, Eve. And Eve somehow convinces Adam to disobey the one rule that God gave them. Then later on, 
one of their sons, Cain, decides to kill his brother, Abel. I'm pretty sure the next season, their reality TV show, The Firsties, I'm pretty sure it was canceled. So we're not off to a really good start. Let's take a look at another famous family. After Noah saved his family from the flood, he got drunk, wild, and naked. Because I'm pretty, this is all in the Bible, folks. I'm pretty sure that it was kind of stressful floating around in an aircraft carrier-sized boat with a bunch of stinky animals. So he got drunk, wild, and naked. And later, it was revealed, probably on Snapchat, that his son Ham, who was apparently unhappy about his name, decided that he was displeased. And so he leaked some unflattering photos. So Noah cursed him. And, and guess what happened? Ham was no longer invited to family game night. That's true. So then we have Abraham's family. You know, the patriarch. We have Abraham's family. God promised a child to a really old, childless, barren couple, Abram and Sarai. And then, apparently, I don't know, misinterpreting God's promise, Abraham decided that maybe he'd better procreate with the maid. So that's what he does. Uh, he, he, he has intimacy with his maid, Hagar. I guess the name was probably a real turn-on. I don't know. And Hagar got pregnant and had a son named Ishmael. Then they, in turn, mocked Sarah for being childless. Hagar and Ishmael eventually left. For some reason, they were disinvited from the annual family barbecues. We have Lot's family. Now, Lot, that guy, what a genius. He thought somehow that it was a good idea to offer his daughters to a group of sexual predators. It's all in the Bible. It's all in the Bible. So that was Lot. Then we have King David. We all remember King David, the man after God's own heart. Well, David has a moment with his next-door neighbor. He gets her pregnant, has her husband killed to cover it up. Then the baby dies. Later, one of his sons, Absalom, betrays him. Not exactly the poster child for perfect family. Let's talk about Solomon's family. Solomon. We know Solomon, right? The wisest guy in the world. Really? Dude had a palace full of wives. You go figure that one. And then finally, it's only fair to mention Jesus' family. So Jesus' parents, you know, Mary and Joe, they pulled the first ever, the original, home alone and left Jesus behind on an extended family road trip. They were so busy on their cell phones, apparently, that they somehow overlooked that their 12-year-old eldest child, you know, son of God, miracle baby, he wasn't in the back seat of the SUV in the caravan. For a whole day, they let it go, and then they realized, something's missing here. Wait, I had, no, I had dinner. <gasps> Kevin, Jesus! Thank you. There's plenty more. There's Jacob and Esau. There's Joseph and his brothers. There's King Saul and his son. Listen, 
Clearly, your family is not alone in the imperfection category. We are all part of imperfect families, just as everyone in the Bible was as well. So let's take heart in that as we move on to our second key. Key number two. Challenges and temptations in life are inevitable. Always remember that God is bigger. Please write that down in all caps. God is bigger. I know that sometimes we feel that we are subject to more temptations or challenges than anyone else. I think we, we tend to focus on ourselves, and I'll be honest, I do that. And sometimes I find myself in a place where I start to feel like, God, enough is enough, isn't it? I mean, how, how much do I need? And yet, I don't know. Maybe in your family you have these struggles as well. Maybe, maybe your kids are struggling in school. God is bigger. Maybe your marriages are filled with endless arguments. God is bigger. Maybe we just feel like giving up sometimes. Say it with me, everybody. God is bigger. Now, I don't say this because it's some trite catchphrase that we can put on a refrigerator magnet or a bumper sticker that will make us smile. I say it because it's actually a very heavy-duty theological truth. We come to terms with this fact, and we're going to be living much more hopeful lives. God is bigger than all the problems we will face. The tricky part is getting that perspective. God is bigger so whenever we believe that temptation or hopelessness is more than we can handle, I want to remind us of something. Let's take a look. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. We read, The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted... He will show you a way out so that you can endure. Now, did you catch that? No matter how difficult your circumstances, God will not allow your temptation to be more than you can handle. And he will provide a way to get through. So easy? Probably not. Convenient? Not likely. But look at that second sentence, and please underline this, the scripture in your outline. God is faithful. God is faithful. You notice that passage did not say, and the moment you ask Christ to be the Lord of your life, all of your problems will melt away. It didn't say that. We will have challenges. We will have temptations. But God is faithful. And that's why it's so important that we never give up. Your family is watching you. Don't pretend that problems don't exist. That would be setting unrealistic expectations for your family. Let me say that one more time. If you, especially if you're a parent, if you pretend that problems don't exist, you're setting unrealistic expectations for your family. It's something that's unattainable. So when they start to hit problems of their own, they're going to wonder what they did wrong. Model, honest, perseverance as a family value. Model perseverance. When your kids and your spouse 
maybe your parents see you going through challenges with gritty determination, it will give them a wonderful example to follow. They'll learn not to give up when things become difficult. And it will make you all stronger as a family. Don't pretend. Never pretend that the problems don't exist. But rather, fight your way through them, relying on God, together as a family. When you do that, you're modeling perseverance. Let's take a look at a passage in Romans chapter 5. Starts in verse 3, we're going to go to the first half of verse 5. It explains that we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation, and this hope will not lead to disappointment. So we see here this key to developing hope when we're in the midst of hurt is not that we are somehow cursed because we're going through trials and temptations. But rather, we should rejoice when we go through those. Not an easy thing to do, I will admit. But we rejoice when we're going through those because that helps build the endurance, the perseverance in our lives. And then from there, we develop this strength of character. And that strength of character then makes us more hopeful. And I think the way it does it is because it allows us to focus on leaning on God's strength rather than our own strength. And as we said at the beginning, that can be so freeing. All right, so those are the first two keys. We're going to move on to the second, or to the third, I'm sorry. The third key is this. Prevention beats intervention every time. Prevention beats intervention every time every time. If the classic, and it is a classic, 80s movie, Karate Kid 2, taught me anything, it's this. Take a look. From very first karate lesson, Yagi father always say, best way to avoid punch, no be there. I don't get it. <laughs> Miyagi say same thing. Until I work here, Miyagi first job, work for Sato father. One day, Miyagi mined on something other than fish when the empty net returned. Oh, that was a little close. Drum technique, understand? Oh, yeah. Drum technique. Yeah, let me try. <laughs> Who wouldn't want a giant hook to come flying at your face to learn the drum technique? But did you hear what Mr. Miyagi said? He said, best way to avoid punch, no be there. Now, isn't that true in life? And so, if you're in a place tonight, we've all gone through hurt. But if you're in a place tonight where you're thinking, okay, well, my family is, we seem pretty solid. We're not going through a lot of difficulty right now. Then this key will be especially helpful for you. Prevention beats intervention every time. The best way to handle difficult situations in any area of life, including family hurt, is to be prepared for it. And then you can position yourself so it doesn't hit you. Just like the drum technique. I think I'll do this for a few minutes. So you can be prepared. When the hits come, you can position yourself 
to be best prepared. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, hey, my family's already hurting. What, is, what good does this do me now? Have you ever heard the saying, don't heap bad on bad? A friend told me that when I was going through my divorce. I was, I was really down, obviously, and all I wanted to do was sit around and eat Twinkies all day. And my friend, a good friend, said, you need to get to the gym. He said, you need to get to the gym. Don't heap bad on bad. Make sure that even when your situation seems bleak, you don't do things to make it even worse. And so in that sense, this key applies to you too, even in the midst. This third key encourages us to prevent future hurts before they hit. You ask any medical doctor, and they'll ask them, hey, where's the best time and money spent? And they will say, prevention over intervention every time. Avoid the problems before they become problems. Or to put it another way, best way to avoid punch, no be there. And so that's the way that we set ourselves up to succeed. Yes, it's true. We need a rescue center, a hospital down at the bottom of the mountain. But how much better to build a better guardrail along the winding road? That's what prevention is. Maybe I can be the next Mr. Miyagi. That sounded pretty wise. I don't know. Actually, Jesus already gave us some better advice. If you check out Luke chapter 6, you have verse 48 on your outline, but 47 through 49 will be on the screen. Jesus says, I will teach you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. It's like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it is well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house right on the ground without a foundation. Then the floods sweep down against that house. It will, when the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. Now look at verse 48 right in the middle. Please underline these words. Dig deep. Dig deep and lay the foundation on solid rock. The foundation that you build in your family will hold you. Yes, the storm may last, but the family will survive. Now, as a youth pastor and also as an education student, I spend a lot of time reading up on youth and family research. I know, I'm super fun at parties. Call me Snapple Caps, that's me. A fountain of information that no one wants to hear. So if you will permit me, I would like to offer you a few preventive techniques that, according to recent research, will help your family avoid some hurt. So here we go. I'm going to give some practical prevention techniques. First, in your family, prioritize intergenerational church participation. Much recent research in the youth ministry field has taught us that if you don't want to see your child walk away from church after graduation, make sure they stay connected to the church as a whole 
which we would call intergenerational ministry, which helps build a healthy sense of responsibility. We don't see church as consumers, but we see it as a family in which we participate. It also helps them find mentors. And then also make sure, so some of you are saying, I do that. Look, here's, here's little Johnny sitting right next to me right now. Isn't he a sweetheart? Okay, here comes the second part. Also make sure that they attend age-specific ministry, children and youth ministry, to process things in a safe, peer-based setting. Because 15-year-old Johnny doesn't necessarily want to talk about puberty with grandma in the room. Does everyone understand? I pulled that quote almost directly from a youth ministry book. It's legal. Make sure that your family prioritizes intergenerational church participation. Second thing you can do for prevention. Two words, family dinner. Family dinner. I, some of you right now are going, I'm, I'm busy. Mike, I'm busy. I got a lot going on. I, I appreciate that. I know. I just, I want you to hear the importance of this. Research from the University of Florida suggests that having dinner together as a family at least four times a week has positive effects on the following things. Child development, lower risk of obesity, lower risk of substance abuse, lower risk of eating disorders, increased chance of graduation from high school. That's pretty impressive. And it's so easy. Just learn to cook, Dad. It didn't say, it didn't say good family dinner. If, you, if, if your thing is to maybe microwave, you know, an Atkins lasagna just because it's got 11 carbs, yes, I know, then, then go for it. But at least four times a week, family dinner together. So easy. The last one. Just can you tuck in your feet a little bit? Because I'm about to step on some toes. <laughs> listen, listen. Here's the caution. Write this down. Electronic babysitting now equals socially and emotionally unplugged kids later. Now, listen, I know a lot of us like to get on this. And they're like, hey, man, we don't need this thing. Let me explain something. I'm not saying smartphones are bad. I'm not saying don't use smartphones. What I am telling you is this. This is brand new research, 2017 research. From a prof from, she's a PhD from, um, she's a psychology professor at San Diego State University. Her name is Jean Twenge. And she offers some terrifying finds. Are you ready? She says there's not a single exception. All screen activities are linked to less happiness, and all non-screen activities are leaned to more happiness, are linked to more happiness. Eighth graders who spend 10 or more hours a week on social media are 56% more likely to say that they are unhappy as compared to those who devote less time to social media. The effect of screen activities is unmistakable. The more time teens spend looking at screens, the more likely they are to report symptoms of depression. This is not a joke. This is real research. Eighth graders who are heavy users of social media increase their risk of depression by 
incidentally, just thought I would throw this out there, intending chur- attending church activities decreases the risk of depression significantly. Last one in this category, because I know it's depressing, but you need to hear this. Teens who spend three hours a day or more on electronic devices are 35% more likely to demonstrate a risk factor for suicide, such as making a suicide plan. That's much more, for those of you who are saying, Mike, people are always against technology. They used to say the same thing about TV. Interestingly enough, that's much more than the risk related to watching TV. One piece of data that indirectly but stunningly captures kids' growing isolation for the good and for the bad, since 2007, which is the year the first smartphone was you know, a, a widely available, we celebrate the anniversary. Since 2007, the homicide rate for teens has declined. That's a good thing. But the suicide rate has increased. As teens have started spending less time together, they have become less likely to kill one another and more likely to kill themselves. That is a sobering and terrifying statistic. In 2011, and this was for the first time in almost 25 years, suicide became the number two killer of teenagers in our country. Number one is always car accidents. Suicide passed homicide for the number two killer of teenagers. And it corresponds exactly with the rise of media. So I don't say that to criticize your parenting skills because I don't know what you're doing at home. I'm just, I'm explaining to you that if you rely on electronic babysitting, you are statistically setting your family up to experience more hurt. Okay, let's move on. To minimize entitlement, live within your means. Use things and love people, not the opposite. Living beyond our means, it not only teaches our family poor budgeting skills, but it also teaches them that time together is secondary to time spent earning money. God has always known this is our tendency. Whether living in overpriced California or living in ancient Rome, Hebrews 13.5 teaches us, don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. Please circle, be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. Please underline that. I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. Because that leads us directly into our final key, which is this. Faith in Christ will not prevent hurt in your family. But it will sustain you and your family through the darkest times. This is where that heavy theology, God is bigger, comes in. It's our connection to Jesus that will give us hope in the midst of the pain we walk through. Now let's be cautious. God never promised us a pain-free life, but what he does promise is that we will never walk through that pain alone. We'll never walk through the pain alone. He walks through our pain with us. He grieves and he cries with us. And he absorbed all of the hurt, the evil, and the emotional violence ever done to us or our families when he died on the cross. This is precisely why, as we lead our families, we must 
insist on consistent family church attendance. Now, you might think, Mike, I feel like you're advertising for church. Yes, I am, and I will tell you why. Because church participation doesn't save us. It doesn't earn favor with God. But it does put us in a position to receive God's love from other people, from this family. When you're part of a hurting family, remember that you're also part of a larger extended family right here. What happens to a hot coal when you take it out of the fire? Yep, it goes out. Stay in the fire. Stay with your church family so that they can walk through your pain and difficulty with you. So when you feel like checking out, that is when you most need to plug in. When you feel like checking out, that's when you most need to plug in. Because your family is loved here. What did we say earlier? Don't heap bad on bad. I'm going through all of this stuff. I just don't feel like going to church today. God will understand. Of course God will understand. But God also understands that he put you in this family to receive hope and love. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 exhorts us, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good deeds and let us not neglect meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Now, I want to speak personally for just a couple minutes because I'm up here giving this talk about helping hurting families and I've been working with teenagers for a long, long time let me tell you, I do this because God called me. And when God calls us to do something, he equips us. And God equipped me with love. I'm a family and student ministries pastor because I love your families. I love your kids. And I want to see them have hope. I want to see them succeed. And I want to do everything that I personally can to invest in the next generation. I thought about it when I was putting the message together. So over the last hmm, 30 years, as I've been working with teenagers, which is crazy because I'm only 25, the, that I've been working with teenagers, seriously, I've worked with around 3,000 kids. That's a lot of kids. And I will tell you what I've seen. I've seen so much hurt. I've seen so much despair. I've seen kids who take their own lives. I've had to bury kids. And yet, I've also seen so much hope. I've seen kids who have no clue who God is come to a relationship with Jesus Christ and it completely turns their lives around. But one thing I never do is promise them that God will make all their, all their problems go away. So I encourage you, know that I and your children's director, and early childhood director, and junior high director, all of our volunteer staff, we love your kids. Let us help you. Let us partner with you so that you can experience some of the hope that comes with being part of an extended family, even when you're in the midst of hurt. I want to conclude with this. 
all, and this is a truth, all families experience hurt. We all need hope. No one is immune. And yet, this is what I believe. In the midst of that hurt, if we learn to let God lead rather than try to lead ourselves, if we learn to try to prevent and set our families up for success, prevent the things that could happen from happening, if we learn that in the midst of the pain that we can have hope by remembering that God is bigger, then we will be able to offer hope for our families who are hurting.